Well, in our passage here this morning, we're really moving into a new section of this letter. And Paul here is going to be offering a warning to the church now, a warning to the believers in the city of Colossae. And I was thinking as I was reading verse 8 this week and thinking about this warning where he doesn't want these believers that he loves to be taken captive. I was thinking about the frightening experience that most parents have had at some point in raising children. And it's that experience in which you lose uh, sight of one of your kids at some point. Maybe you're in a shopping mall, maybe you're at a theme park, you're somewhere busy, and all of a sudden one of your kids gets out of your sight and you go into panic mode, right? When this has happened to me on a couple of occasions, even though I only lost sight of my kids in a crowd for a second, it's like you go from even keel, everything's okay, to total panic. It's funny because when you lose sight of your kids, you never think that some nice homeschool mom is going to find them and be like, let me help you get back to your parents. You always think the worst. You think that it's some human trafficker, some kidnapper that's going to take your kid and you will never, ever see them again. And that's why it is so terrifying when you lose sight of your kids in public. Typically, parents do two things because, unfortunately, we do live in a world with kidnappers and human traffickers. So you typically do two things with your young children. Number one, you teach your children to stay really close to you. Right? You say, hey, stay with us. Nobody on earth loves you as much as mommy and daddy. We're here to protect you. We're here to care for you. So stay close to us. And the second thing that parents do is they offer warnings to their kids. Don't ever talk to strangers. Never get into a car with somebody. Don't go walking down the street alone. Make sure we're with you or take your older brother or sister with you. We offer warnings to our kids and it's because we love them. We want to protect them, and we know they're safest when they're with us, and we warn them against danger. The Apostle Paul here in Colossians, who honestly is much like a spiritual father to these believers, he has a similar concern for his children in the faith. Paul is aware that his spiritual children are constantly in danger of being drug away from faith in Jesus Christ, of being taken captive, being pulled away from faith in Jesus, which will ultimately destroy them. It will leave them spiritually bankrupt. In chapter 2, verse 4, he wrote this. We saw this last week. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. There were false teachers that had invaded the church at Colossae, and they were teaching the believers there to look other places beyond Jesus to find spiritual life. And they were invading the church with plausible arguments. Another translation says, fine-sounding arguments. And I think that's important because when we think about false teaching, we need to realize that usually, or I should say it this way, the, the most effective false teaching, the most dangerous false teaching that, has, that exists is not just wildly crazy. There's a level of plausibility to it. They're fine-sounding arguments. At the surface level, they seem to make sense and they become attractive. False teaching that's dangerous is not outright ridiculous. No rational adult believes in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy or the Easter Bunny. But many rational adults believe in an atheistic theory of evolution 
believe in Islam, believe in Buddhism, believe that all truth is relative and subjective. There are many rational people that believe these things. And the church at Colossae, just like the church in every age, just like the church today, was facing a very real threat of being swept away into a belief system that would ultimately leave them spiritually bankrupt. And so Paul, like a good parent, is doing everything in his power in this book to warn them and to keep this from ever happening. And so the first thing he does is he encourages these believers to stay close to Jesus. He says in verses 6 and 7, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Now we'll unpack this in a moment, but simply put, he's saying, stay with Jesus. Continue to walk with him. Abide in him. Don't abandon Jesus. Stay there. The second thing he does is he issues a warning to them, and that's verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. I titled this morning's message, Avoiding Spiritual Abduction. Avoiding Spiritual Abduction. Now, as meaty as this book has been in chapter 1, we actually are only now really getting to the meat of the book of Colossians. Up to this point, we've been reading through a very lengthy introduction but verses, verses 6 and 7 are sort of a transition now into the real meat of the letter to the church at Colossae. And these two verses, 6 and 7, really sum up the main message of the entire letter. They sum up what Paul is trying to get at and what Paul will unpack through the rest of the letter. He says, therefore, just as you receive Jesus as Savior, right? That's what Christ means, the Messiah, their Savior. Just as you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, meaning the ruler and the leader of God's people, continue living in that way. You initially receive Jesus as your Savior and as Lord of your life, the one who's in charge, the one who leads, the one who rules. Continue in that. Keep going in that. Now, walk in him, Paul says. Order your life in step with who Jesus is. And then he has these two terms here that are so meaningful. He says, rooted and built up. Rooted is an agricultural term, right? Plants have roots. Trees have roots. And and roots speak of stability. And they speak of depth. And they speak of sustenance. Right, The root system of a plant or a tree goes down into the soil and that's how that tree gets all of its nutrients, all of the resources that it needs to be healthy and to grow and to thrive. That comes through the roots. And the roots are what create the stability and the depth of that tree or that plant. And Paul is saying, listen, you need to stay rooted in him. You want spiritual depth? You want to be fed. You want to be nourished spiritually. You want to be stable spiritually. Stay rooted in him. That's how it's going to happen. Then he says built up, which is a structural term or architectural term. The idea of of constructing something, building something up. And again, he's saying if, if you want to be not only rooted and have stability and depth, but you want height and you want to experience growth, 
You want to be built up spiritually. He says that also is going to take place in him. So, so it's not Jesus to get you started spiritually. Then you go find some other program or some other thing that will help you to grow and to be built up. All of it is bound up in Jesus himself. It's all in him. And then he says this. He says, established in the faith just as you were taught. Now, the faith, you could circle that, the faith, definite article, refers to a particular body of beliefs and practices that constitute the Christian life. So he's saying they need to be established in the faith. They need to be established in the faith that they were taught, he actually says. So there was a particular set of ideas and beliefs and practices that were taught to them when they became Christians. And he says they need to stay established in that, in the faith that they had been taught. Who taught it to them? We already learned this in chapter 1, verse 7. It was a missionary, a man named Epaphras, who likely got converted under the preaching of Paul. And then he went to Colossae, which is probably where he lived, and he started sharing the gospel, and people got saved, and a small church got planted there. And so this man, Epaphras, taught them the faith. They had the faith given to them. And Paul says to them, they need to be established in that faith just as they were taught. So this is interesting. Part of the way that we as Christians can remain rooted in Jesus and be built up in Jesus is through making sure that we are established in the faith that we had been taught. In other words, what we should be interested in having as believers is we should be interested in having a historic faith. We should want to have a faith that has been handed down for the last 2,000 years from the original apostles of Jesus Christ down through the centuries to us. We said this before, we are not interested in inventing Christianity. We can't do that. We have inherited Christianity. We have received Christianity. And so the way that we stay rooted, especially in a culture like ours, which is trying to take Christianity in so many different directions, is to stay established in the faith that we have been taught. That we have been taught here, that we have been taught historically for the last 2,000 years. Paul is telling the Christians here in Colossae, there is no further teaching that you need in order to be all that God wants you to be than that which you have already been taught. That which is defined by the faith. The, the ideas, the doctrines, the beliefs that are defining the faith. They don't need anything beyond that. They need nothing beyond the boundaries of the faith. Epaphras gave them all that they needed. And embedded in the information, in the gospel that Epaphras had preached to them, was enough fuel for the fire of gratitude to last for an entire life. And so Paul says, abounding in thanksgiving. One of the ways that we can know that we've received the true gospel and one of the ways we can know that we are, in fact, still in the faith is if we find ourselves abounding in thanksgiving. The gospel message, the true gospel message, is good news. 
And it should cause us to be a grateful people. And so if we're not overflowing with gratitude day in and day out for all that God has done for us, we probably have not heard or at least grasped the true gospel. It produces an abundance of thanksgiving in our lives. So this is the transition, 6 and 7. This really is the essence of the entire letter. As you received him, so continue to walk in him. Don't go to the left, don't go to the right. But now at verse 8, Paul, after saying stick close to Jesus, is going to offer a warning. And he says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. Now again, when we think about as parents... Having one of our children taken from us, we're thinking about people physically grabbing them and stealing them away. Or if you think about the word captive, which is a military term, you think about an army conquering you and then dragging you off into captivity using guns and rope and fast cars or whatever they're going to use to get you out of here. But Paul's not talking about being taken captive like that. What he has in mind is being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, he writes. By philosophy and empty deceit. Now, Paul is not condemning philosophy in general here. Okay, the two philosophy majors in the church are beaming with smiles right now. Sigh of relief. Your degree is still valid. Okay, philosophy, in its most basic sense, means love of wisdom. And in the ancient world, a philosophy was a set of ideas that tried to help people live their life and figure out how to live life well and wisely. In fact, oftentimes religions were called philosophy in ancient times. So Paul here in Colossians 2.8 is not condemning the love of wisdom. He's not condemning philosophy in general. He qualifies exactly what he is condemning in this verse. He's condemning a certain type of philosophy that he says is empty deceit or worthless deception. It's a type of philosophy that is not actually based on truth, true reality. And it's a type of philosophy that therefore will not profit you. It won't benefit you. It's actually going to end up being worthless to you. How would we know which type of philosophy this is? Well, the issue for Paul is whether or not The philosophy is according to human tradition or according to Christ. Do you see that in verse 8? Any philosophy or worldview or belief system that does not account for Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, the truth incarnate and God in flesh, any worldview that does not account for Jesus that way is ultimately going to leave you bankrupt. It's not going to benefit you. And it will not produce wisdom. After all, we learned in verse 3 of chapter 2 that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if, if it's not about Jesus, you're not going to experience wisdom. You're not going to learn how to live rightly in God's world. If you stop and think about it, beliefs ultimately do originate in God which Paul would call according to Christ, or they originate with humans, which he would say according to human tradition. Or there is a third option, which he alludes to here. It's an even more sinister place that ideas can originate from. He calls it here according to the elemental spirits 
of the world. They can have a demonic origin. The big idea of verse 8 is this. Any philosophy or belief system that runs counter to the faith that was handed down by the apostles that is recorded for us in the Bible will ultimately leave you bankrupt. We have to avoid that. We have to stay rooted and grounded in the faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul warns against in verse 8. And now he's going to give us five reasons. And we're going to unpack these with the rest of our time. Five reasons why you and I cannot afford to abandon Jesus for anything else. Reason number one is found in verses 9 and 10. And it's this. In him, speaking of Jesus, you experience fullness. Let's read these verses again. Chapter 2, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now we need to stop and just acknowledge that verse 9 is an incredible statement about Jesus and about who Jesus is. What Paul is saying here is that there is nothing of God's being or God's essence that is lacking in Jesus of Nazareth. When people on this earth 2,000 years ago looked at Jesus and touched Jesus, there was nothing of God's being or essence lacking in Jesus. The fullness of deity, all the fullness of deity dwelt bodily in Jesus of Nazareth. So that it is not accurate to say that Jesus is part God. It is also not accurate to say that Jesus is one third of God. The historic Christian understanding of Jesus is that Jesus is fully God. And simultaneously fully man. Right? Boom! explosive, mysterious, stretches your mind. I understand that. But to say something less of Jesus will leave us bankrupt. It is only a Jesus who is fully God and fully man who can make you and I full. And that's exactly what Paul says we experience. And how could that not be true? If all the fullness, the fullness of Deity dwelt bodily in Jesus, and by faith you are in Jesus. How can you be anything other than full? Of course, you will experience fullness, which is exactly what he says in verse 10. He says, And you have been filled in him. Think about what this means. The moment that a person believes in Jesus as Savior and Lord, the moment they do. I mean, there, somebody here today might not be a Christian yet. But if they were to believe in Jesus today, the moment they do that, they are plunged into God's fullness. So that God's presence and God's love and God's power pervades everything about that person from that day moving forward. What does this look like? I've heard a great illustration for this. 
We live at the beach. So if after church today, you were to go to the ocean, and let's say you took a glass jar, an empty glass jar to the ocean, and you walked out about waist high, and you took that empty jar, and you plunged it into the Pacific Ocean, and then you pulled it back up again. In that moment, we would say that that jar is full with the fullness of the Pacific Ocean. Even though the entire Pacific Ocean doesn't fit into that one jar, but that jar is filled now, overflowing even, with the fullness of the Pacific Ocean. And in the same way, the moment a person believes in Jesus, again, they are plunged into the very fullness of Christ. And even though all of God is not contained in us, we are filled with the fullness of Christ and filled with the very fullness of God. Again, all of God's presence and love and power is animating us and pervading our entire being. Isn't it amazing that so often the people that we look at in the world that that seem to have fullness, they have so much wealth, power, prestige, family, financial freedom, they have all these things so often report to still feeling empty. Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes is sort of the quintessential example of this. A man who had everything. And he goes on a journey in Ecclesiastes just trying to fill emptiness. He's looking for meaning and purpose. He's looking for satisfaction. And guess what? He gets to the entire end of the book, the entire end of the journey, and he ends up right back at relationship with God. And he says this in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He went, he pursued it all, he tried to find fulfillment And he realized the only place that we get filled is in relationship with God. And so to an empty and broken and weary world, Jesus himself says this in Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We cannot afford to abandon Jesus because in him we experience fullness. Number two, In him, you experience victory over sin. This is verses 11 and 12. Paul writes here, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So, just like in him you were filled, now Paul says, in him you were circumcised. Now, I understand. That's a bizarre argument for us right now. What in the world does he mean that you were circumcised? Circumcision, of course, is a medical procedure in which you remove the foreskin off a man's penis. Now, in the Old Testament, that procedure was used to distinguish God's people 
from all of the pagan nations around them. And it was the sign of God's covenant with them. Here's Genesis 17, 9 through 11. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So this was the physical sign and the distinguishing mark that separated God's people who were in covenant, in relationship with him, from those who were not. It seems as if there are strong Jewish elements involved in this false teaching in Colossae. Circumcision is obviously an issue. We also, in verse 16, which we'll get to next week, notice that there is a concern over dietary laws. There's a concern over festivals and Sabbath days. So there's likely a strong Jewish element to the false teaching here. Perhaps, just like we learned in Galatians when we studied the book of Galatians, perhaps the false teachers here were also saying to these new converts, do you really want to belong to God? Do you really want to become part of God's people? Then you must be circumcised. And to that line of thinking, Paul says this to these believers who are probably feeling a lot of anxiety, right men? Like, I got to do what? Paul says, guess what? If you're in Christ, you've already been circumcised. You don't have to do that. Now, obviously, he's not talking about physical male circumcision here. He actually explains himself. He says it's a circumcision made without hands. In other words, it's a circumcision that is performed not by humans. It's a circumcision performed by God. It is a spiritual circumcision. What is it? Well, he describes it this way. It's putting off the body of the flesh. Putting off the body of the flesh. Again, think about this. Under the old covenant, the Jews were marked off physically as God's people, as the males among them had a piece of flesh physically removed from their bodies. And now, under the new covenant, God's people are marked off by experiencing the removal of our fleshly natures, our ungodly ideas and attitudes and behaviors, and instead, by having us being renewed in the image of our Creator. In chapter 3, Paul's going to explain this a little bit more. Here's Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So again, here in chapter 2, it's putting off the body of the flesh. In chapter 3, it's going to say putting off the old self with its practices, verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The false teachers in Colossae 
They had their strategies for how people could overcome sin. We're not the first people on earth to look at ourselves and go, man, I don't have it all figured out. We're not the first people to say, I've got problems. In fact, my problems got problems. Every person has felt that way since the garden. Every person looks at themselves and says, man, I wish I could just fix this. If I could get my anger under control. If I could become more humble and stop being so proud. If I'd stop being so selfish. If I wasn't so greedy. If I wasn't so fill in the blank. And the false teachers in Colossae, they had strategies to deal with that. Paul's going to talk about that in the next verses. We're going to see this next week. Their strategies involved asceticism, which is basically denying kind of physical pleasure and things to your body and severity to their body. So it was going to be a whole lot of personal effort. That's how you're going to do it. Willpower. And here's what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 23 about that. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. All right, that looks really, really spiritual. When you see people out there starving themselves and living as hermits and monks and different things, there's there's an element of that where it goes, man, that looks really, really spiritual. He says it has an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But here's the key, he says, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's not how it happens. How it happens is by being in Christ and having Christ in you. God's Spirit taking up residence in your heart and now God in all fullness helping you to no longer live according to the flesh, to no longer be ruled and dominated by all of those attitudes and perspectives and patterns of living that used to dominate you before you became a Christian. In Christ, we can experience deliverance over sin. Now, are we going to become perfect this side of heaven? If you do arrive, come talk to me. I'd love to meet you. We're not going to get perfect, but we will be continually, as Paul said there in chapter 3, being renewed in the image of our creator or as paul says in corinthians that we will be transformed into the same image speaking of christ from one degree of glory to another so that the person that you are right now is not the same person you're going to be in 12 months if you're in christ the person that your spouse is right now can i get a hallelujah is not the same person your spouse will be in five years my wife said hallelujah she's the only one We are going to change and be transformed as we are in Christ. Now, verse 12 connects this removal of the flesh to our baptism, which is very interesting. Does this mean that baptism delivers us from our sin? No. Paul is not teaching that baptism is a magic ceremony. And that if you just say, hey, sign me up for baptism, and you get plunged into the waters of baptism and brought back out that voila, you have victory over sin. That's not what Paul's saying at all. We know that our being brought into Christ, our union with Christ is through faith. And Paul explains himself in these verses. He writes that in baptism, we are buried with him and raised with him through what? It's right there in the text. Through what? Raised with him, this is verse 12, through faith, he says. 
faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So, our experiencing the realities that baptism depicts is dependent on our faith in the God who raised Jesus from the grave. That's how we experience these things, is through faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. But the reason why baptism is so closely tied to faith in the New Testament is because baptism is our initial and public faith act. When somebody says, yes to Jesus, I want to follow Jesus as Lord, that's, that's a faith decision. But when a person says that and believes that in their heart, the way they do that, the way they declare that is through baptism. It's by entering into the waters of baptism and being identified now with Christ and with the body of Christ. And so, my question for you this morning, believer, is have you been baptized? Do you want to be baptized? And if your answer to that is no, does that say something about the genuineness of your faith? Baptism is our initial and public faith act. And if I don't want to do that, we have to ask ourselves, why? Do I really trust Jesus? Do I really want to be in him? Do I really want to belong to him? Number three, and these ones are going to come quicker. In him you experience new life. Verse 13. Paul writes, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. According to the Bible, you and I, because of our sin, were spiritually dead apart from Christ. Ephesians 2.1 tells us this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Without Jesus, you and I and every other person on planet earth are hopeless. We are left for dead. The fact that you've broken God's commands, like lying or stealing or having idols in your heart or lusting after someone, whatever the sins are that you've lived in, they separate us from God and they leave us spiritually dead. But Paul says that God made us alive together with Christ. So the moment that you are in him, you are brought from death to life, spiritual life. Now, most of us have had the experience of walking out to our car in a parking lot or in our driveway and it not turning over because the battery is dead. Now, if you have that experience and you say, well, that's okay, I'll just wait 10 minutes and then it'll be ready to go. You just stand there. Ten minutes later, when you get back in the car and you try to start it, nothing's going to happen because nothing changed. What you need to do is you need to connect the dead battery to a power source, probably through jumper cables, so that life can be brought back into that battery and now can start to work. In the same way, spiritually speaking, if we are not connected by faith to Christ, who is the power source, who is life and eternal life, we are not going to be brought to life. We will remain dead. But Paul here writes 
that even though we were dead, in him God has made us alive. We are brought to life in Christ. This is beautiful. This is powerful. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus that you have to be born again to inherit eternal life. We need a new birth. We need new spiritual life brought into us in order for us to live life with God. You and I cannot afford to abandon Jesus for anything else because it's only in him that we experience the new birth. Number four, in him you experience full and final forgiveness. Look again at the end of verse 13. Paul writes here, Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In order for us to experience the new life that I just described, our sin has to be dealt with. The Bible explains to us that what we owe to God because he created us is we owe our obedience. We have not done well with that. Every one of our sins is disobedience to God. And therefore, according to the logic of Scripture, every time we sin, we're just adding a little bit more to the debt we owe God. Have you guys ever seen those like finance calculators or accounting calculators? They're big and they have a massive roll of receipt on the end. And everything you type, even if it's a mistake, it's just recorded. And the thing just keeps spitting out a longer and longer receipt. Every day of your life, as you sin, it's like the way accounting's happening there. The receipt's getting a little longer, a little longer. There's another sin, another sin. How long do you think that receipt is in your life right now? The receipt of my life in 37 years of living on this earth would be running out the back door and across to the beach, probably. We're not even aware of all the sin that we commit, but it's all being recorded and it is a record of debt that stands against any claim that you, want, you might want to make before God of saying, I'm good enough. God's going to go, really? And just look at it and just unroll it for you. And that should scare us. But we don't have to live in fear because Paul is explaining that, that God, through Christ, dealt with your record of debt and my record of debt. This verse says that our record of debt has been canceled or it's been removed or it's been wiped away because it was nailed to the cross. So just like if you had a long invoice or debt that somebody gave to you and it was paid, they might take a red stamp and slap it on there that says paid in full. Your record of debt was nailed to the cross while Jesus was there and the red blood of Jesus washed over your record of debt and it declares paid in full. How much of your sin was paid for by Jesus? Not part of it. He says, having all of our trespasses forgiven in him. In him and in him alone, we experience full and final forgiveness. We are no longer on the hook to pay for our own sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The old hymn, It is well with my soul, captures this idea well. 
My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Fifth and finally, in him we experience spiritual protection. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, rulers and authorities here seems to be referring to spiritual powers. It seems to be referring to the demonic realm. Verse 8 called them elemental spirits of the world. According to the, knowledge, or to the knowing the Bible commentary on Colossians, they explain that there is abundant evidence from the ancient Greco-Roman world that people lived in fear of spirits and the demonic realm. And they were often preoccupied with how to appease them. The heresy in Colossians apparently offered a way to appease these rulers and authorities or claimed to provide protection against them. Now, when we think about what the cross of Jesus accomplished, we oftentimes think of what I just talked about, that at the cross, our sin was paid for, and that is true. But one of the other things that the cross achieved is that it declared victory over the demonic realm. Satan and all of the host of hell threw everything that they had at Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And they killed him. They got the Jews to turn against him, the Romans to turn against him, his own disciples to abandon him, and they killed him. But three days later, when the ground began to shake and the stone was rolled away, and Jesus came up out of that tomb, it was an announcement. It was a putting on notice to Satan and to the whole demonic realm that you lost and God won. It was a triumph. It was a victory over the spirits that have terrorized human beings throughout the centuries. Christians do not need to live in fear of spirits or the demonic realm, and we certainly don't have to figure out how to appease them. In Christ, we experience triumph over them. Now, admittedly, many in the West don't believe in spiritual powers and forces like the Colossians did. But many in the West are spiritual. They believe in higher powers, and they believe in fate. Many others believe we are governed by our genes and our chemistry, and that in the grip of such forces, we can never really be free. Yet the scriptures teach us that in Christ... We are not ultimately under the control or the power of any force, spiritual or physical. Jesus disarmed all powers that are opposed to the plan of God. And what that means for you is that if you are in Christ, you are free to become all that God designed you to be. Nothing under heaven has that much power or control over you. Jesus controls you. And Jesus empowers you to be what God created you to be. In closing then, here is Paul's point. Christians in every age are going to face so many different doctrines and belief systems that are attempting to woo you away. And they're plausible. They're fine-sounding arguments. Woo you away from a simple and robust faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, as we've talked about today, it is only in Christ 
that true fullness can really happen. Because in Christ alone, our sin is forgiven. In Christ alone, we are empowered to not be ruled by sin anymore. In Christ alone, we are made spiritually alive. And in Christ alone, we share in his victory over all of the powers in this world that seek to control us. So we close where we began. Paul says this, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray.